Our Heavenly Father, you say that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, Uh, It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And we're left without an excuse before you. Uh, Father, we pray that your word would be working this morning in us. Please convict us where we need to be convicted. Please encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Uh, Please uh, turn our eyes to Jesus. Uh, And we pray it for his name and his glory. Amen. Well, this morning we're diving back into a series that we kind of left off in August last year, back into uh, the New Testament book of Acts. And by way of reminder, just to help us get our bearings in Acts again, Acts was written by Luke. Uh, It's the second of a two-volume series. The first book in his series is Luke's Gospel. The second is this book, The Acts of the Apostles. Or if you might remember way back to Steve's first sermon in this series last year, perhaps it's better titled, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. And Luke, as he uh, writes his his two-volume series, uh, he tells us the reason that he's writing, his purpose in writing, way back in chapter 1 of his Gospel. Luke was a medical doctor, so he's kind of got this orderly scientific mind. If you want the art student version of the Gospels, you go to John, but if you want the orderly scientific version, you read Luke. Luke has acted as an investigative historian. He's gone around, he's interviewed eyewitnesses, he's got the story and he's then sat down in his office and put these two books together and he's done it, he says, so that we might know the events of the Gospel so that we might have confidence in them and their historical integrity, and then we might go on and share them with others. That's why Luke is writing, first of all, his Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, and second of all, uh, the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Our passage this morning, in chapter 11, is all about growing churches. And by churches, Acts doesn't mean beautifully ornate buildings, uh, Acts doesn't mean a particular organisational structure. There was no church building in Antioch in the first century. There was no bishops or parish councils or session clerks or whatever your denominational organisational structure has. None of that in Antioch in the first century. What Acts means and what Luke means when he says church is simply an assembly or a gathering of believers. But this particular gathering of believers in Antioch represents this very significant moment, not just in Acts, not just in the history of the church, but actually in the history of the whole of humanity. This passage shows us the moment, that very instant where the gospel for the first time expands beyond the geographical borders of the nation of Israel. This is, if you like, the international debut of the church. And as such, it's the international debut of the most prolific and influential global movement in the history of mankind. If you're a sociologist and you've missed these verses, you're not very good at your job. And what we see in these verses is God's method, his business model for growing his church. And his model has stayed the same from the moment of this international debut in Antioch right up until today. 
God's method for growing his church is the same in Antioch as it is here in Toowoomba 2,000 years later. It's been the same at every moment in every place in between and it will stay the same until Jesus comes back. And so what I want us to see from this passage this morning, if you're taking notes, these are our three headings, what I want us to see from Acts this morning is that God's method for church growth involves three things. Firstly, God's method for church growth involves ordinary believers. Secondly, God's method for growing his church involves the teaching of his word. And thirdly, God's method for growing his church involves gospel generosity. God's method for growing his church involves ordinary believers, the teaching of his word, and gospel generosity. So first, Luke shows us God grows his church through ordinary believers. Luke picks up in verse 19 where he left off really at the beginning of chapter 8. If you flip back there in your Bibles for a moment, you'll see what I mean. Uh, You'll see chapter 8 from verse 1 speaks of the execution of Stephen by stoning by the Jewish leaders and the persecution of the church in Jerusalem that follows. Everyone except the apostles are forced to flee from Jerusalem. And so Luke writes in 8 verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Flip back to chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. It continues on, doesn't it? You could almost skip the three and a half chapters from chapter 8, verse 4 to 11, verse 19, and the story would still make sense. So why is there a gap in between? What has happened in those three and a half chapters between then and now? Well, as as Luke sits down in his office, he's got all his interview notes from his eyewitnesses. He doesn't have cut and paste, so he's got them all laid out on his office floor trying to put his book together. What What's he doing? Why has he put these three and a half chapters in between? I think it's a little bit like the Lord of the Rings films. Um, yeah, stick with me. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings films, you've got all these different storylines going on, don't you? At, at one moment, you've got Frodo and Sam, and they're on their way to Mount Doom. And then the camera zooms out and it pans across, and you have, uh, you have Merry and Pippin at Isengard. And you get a little bit of their story. And then the camera zooms out again and it, it flies over to, uh, to Aragorn and Legolas and uh, Gimli at Helm's Deep. You get all these different storylines going on. That's what's happening here in Acts. That's how Luke is writing his, his anthology. It's a, a very well-crafted story. Luke's done that. He's focused on some key figures. So chapter 9, he's zoomed in on Saul, the persecutor of the church, and his conversion on the road to Damascus. Then he zooms out and pans across in chapter 10 to the apostle Peter, and we get this breakthrough moment of the very first Gentile convert in Cornelius. And now, as we get to chapter 11, it's as if the camera zooms out again, it pans across, and it sweeps back to the believers who have fled Jerusalem. And we see what's going on far away from Jerusalem in Antioch, how the the gospel has spread beyond the geographical borders of Israel for the first time as these scattered believers have gone about preaching the word, talking about the Lord Jesus. 
Why has Luke done it that way? What does he want us to see? He wants us to see that the thing that has just happened in chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius is not this one-off random event. The gospel spreading is not just about individual people getting converted by the apostles. Actually, this is happening, Luke wants us to see, all over the world. He's not just into saving individuals. God is about bringing all people together into the body of Christ. And he does that, God brings it about through the persecution in Jerusalem that scatters believers all over the Roman Empire. We can see that they're just ordinary believers in the way that Luke describes them. You see there in verse 19, what does he call them? No one gets named, he just says those who were scattered. And verse 20, who does he say they are? It's just some of them. Just ordinary believers, none of them get named, but all of them, Luke says, are speaking the gospel to non-believers. These guys are new Christians. They haven't been schooled in doctrine. There's no theological colleges. The Christian faith isn't old enough for that yet. They don't even have a New Testament. They haven't had time to develop a five-part gospel outline with diagrams and a nice little tract that they, they can hand out in the main street of Antioch. Their lives are at risk for speaking the gospel. But despite all these things, they go on and they speak it anyway. And what's the result? It's incredible growth, isn't it? Luke is very clear how effective this ministry is. How many people become Christians? Verse 21, a great number. Verse 24, a great many people. Verse 26, a great many people. This ministry of ordinary believers is incredibly effective. Why is it so effective? How does this explosive growth of the church come about through ordinary people? It's because the growth of the church really isn't up to us. It's not up to ordinary believers. The business of church growth is actually God's business. That much is clear in these verses, isn't it? In verse 21, When Barnabas arrives in Antioch to see how the church has grown, what does he rejoice at? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. That puts it passively. Who adds them to the Lord? God does. God adds them to the Lord. So Luke wants us to see that the church in Antioch grows because God makes it grow. It's because God's hand is with them. It grows because of God's grace. People are added to the church, to the body of Christ, because God adds them to the body of Christ. The growth of the church happens because God's business is growing his church. Now, I find that both comforting and scary at the same time if that's possible. It's comforting because it means I don't have to be the most articulate evangelist that there is. I don't have to have all my apologetic ducks lined up in a row. I don't have to have a PhD in theology and be smarter than everyone else in the room. I don't have to have the most charismatic personality. 
Because it's not up to me, is it? God is the one who's growing his church. It's his business and he's really good at it. That's comforting. Takes the pressure off me a little bit. But it's also scary. It's scary because it means I don't have an excuse anymore. You see, I can't say to God, sorry God, just a couple more books on apologetics and then I think I'll understand enough and then I'll have a crack at it. Sorry God, I'm not, not smart enough to share the gospel with those guys. They would just outwit me. Sorry God, I'm too shy. If only you'd given me a more outgoing personality, then I could do it. Those excuses don't cut it, do they? If God is responsible for growing his church, none of those excuses matter. And in fact, it's, it's good that God has made me you know, not too outgoing and not too bright because if people get saved after hearing my semi-coherent attempt at explaining the gospel, then it's very clear that the credit and the glory for people getting saved belongs to God and not to me. That's a good thing. Friends, what is it that stops you from sharing the gospel? Is it that you don't know enough? Because these guys were brand new Christians. Is it that you feel like you haven't received enough training? Now, these guys didn't have any resources. They didn't even have a church. Is it because you're scared of what people will say about you or to you? These guys face death for speaking about Jesus. But they went on doing it anyway, didn't they? Why were they confident to do that? Because over and above all of these things, God is the one who is growing his church. He's been growing his churches like this for 2,000 years, all over the world, and he's very good at it. God grows his church through ordinary believers, ordinary, nameless believers fleeing persecution, ordinary believers like you and me. Second, God grows his church through the teaching of his word. Let me read through verses 19 to 26 again, see if you can spot it. Uh, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad... And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Looks clear, isn't he? God grows his church through the preaching of his word. God establishes, God maintains, God secures his church through the preaching of his word. How's the church established? Verses 19 to 21, through these ordinary, persecuted, scattered believers who know that the gospel is so good they can't keep it to themselves. 
as they fled, they, they know Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament, so they speak it to Jews. But some of them, knowing this is good news for all people, speak it to Hellenists also, that is, Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people. And through that preaching, great numbers turn to the Lord. The church is established as these ordinary believers preach the message. The church is maintained by the preaching of the word. Verses 22 to 24, the apostles in Jerusalem send Barnabas to Antioch. They want to confirm that this is a genuine church to see if people have actually responded to Jesus. Barnabas gets there and he sees that it is a genuine church. People have trusted Jesus and it says he's glad in verse 23 and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. See, the preaching of the gospel is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. Anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time knows that to keep going... You need exhortation in the word to remain faithful. The the Christian life is a marathon, isn't it? It's not a sprint. And Barnabas knows that. So his first order of business when he gets to Antioch is to encourage the believers to keep going. If you're reading a King James Version, it puts it very literally but very beautifully. Barnabas exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. How do they go on in their faith? They cleave or they cling to the Lord with purpose of heart. If you've been through hard times, uh, you know that the way you come out of it as a Christian at the other end is clinging to the Lord with all of your heart. Clinging to him as your treasure and as your hope and as your, your closest friend. Barnabas knows that and he wants to maintain the church in Antioch so he exhorts them to cling to the Lord with all of their hearts. And how does he continue to do that? Verse 25 and 26, he works to secure the church in their faith. He knows that he's going to need help doing that. He's met Saul previously. He knows that Saul is the apostle to the Gentiles and so this is a job for him And Barnabas heads off to Tarsus to look for him. Now, nearly 10 years has passed between chapter 9, when Saul is converted, and when Barnabas goes to get him in chapter 11. Uh, One chapter in our books, but 10 years in history. Saul's been relatively quiet since then. No one knows what he's been up to, but Barnabas knows that he's around Tarsus somewhere, and so he heads off to find him. This is before the days of mobile phones and the Find My Friends app. Uh, Saul hasn't checked in on Facebook, so... Barnabas doesn't know where he is, but you can imagine him kind of hanging out in the marketplace in the synagogue. Has anyone seen Saul? Uh, I'm looking for him. Someone surely heard about him. Eventually he finds him, and when he does, Barnabas takes Paul back to Antioch with him, and for a whole year they set up the Saul and Barney's Discipleship Training Academy. And over that year, through the teaching of God's word, they secure new believers in a deep and strong faith. They preach to them the whole counsel of God. The church is established by the teaching of the word, the church is maintained by the preaching of the word, and the church is secured by the preaching of the word. And you see at the end of each of those three sections, what's the result? A great number who believe turned to the Lord. A great many people were added to the Lord. 
They taught a great many people. This is an incredibly effective method of ministry, preaching the Lord. It's not rocket science, is it? God grows his church through the teaching of his word. Third, God's method for growing his church involves gospel generosity. Do you see how the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch interacted with one another? It's very obvious in in verse 27 how Antioch acts towards Jerusalem. So verse 27, Now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be great famine all over the world. Uh, Now just a a side note about prophecy and and prophets in Acts. Prophecy is not some super spiritual uh, gift for uh, just some Christians. Prophecy in Acts is something that comes with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So you see that back in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Peter stands up and he quotes Joel chapter 2 and he says, you all get the Holy Spirit. He's kind of like Oprah. Uh, you get the Holy Spirit and you get the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, everyone will prophesy. And what is that prophecy? What, what's the, what do you do when you prophesy? Well, it's not too dissimilar to what happens in the Old Testament with prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament weren't just kind of the 15 or so guys that wrote the last half of the Old Testament. Uh, You could actually go into prophecy as a career path. Prophecy could be the family business. And whether you're one of those 15 or whether you're, you know, the family business prophets, the job's basically the same. The, The prophet does three things. They remind, they warn, and they comfort. So Old Testament prophets reminded people about God's covenant. So try reading Deuteronomy alongside the, the latter prophets in the Old Testament and you'll see what I mean. They remind people of God's covenant and the consequences of disobedience. They warn them that they haven't been faithful to the covenant and so punishment is coming. And they comfort the people. They say, yes, punishment is coming, but punishment won't last forever. God will be faithful to his covenant with Abraham. Our job as prophets, any of us who have the Holy Spirit, is not all that different. We remind people of what God has done in Jesus. We warn them what will happen if they don't repent. And we comfort them with the forgiveness that's on offer when they trust in Jesus. Prophecy is speaking about Jesus. And we're all prophets if we have the Holy Spirit. But also in Acts... There are a few people who have, in addition to this prophecy that we all do if we've got the Holy Spirit, have this particular job of foretelling. Uh, this particular kind of prophecy is something that only happens, I think, in the, the New Testament early church period. Once the, the New Testament is written, that ceases. It doesn't continue to happen beyond that. But that's what we see in Agabus here. Agabus is uh, one of these foretelling prophets. He shows up and he says there's going to be a famine that's going to strike the whole world. By the world, they're very parochial, the world is the Roman Empire. Uh, And as Luke writes his account and he's reflecting on this, he says Agabus was a true prophet. This actually happened and it came about in the days of Claudius. How does the church in Antioch respond? Verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They respond with gospel generosity, don't they? God's grace to these people who were 
ignorant, apathetic, calloused pagans transforms them into generous, sacrificial believers caring for their brothers in Jerusalem. But I want you also to see how the church in Jerusalem acts towards the believers in Antioch. That's, that's less obvious on the, the surface of it, but go back to verse 22. The report of this, the, the growth of the church in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, I don't know how much you guys know about Barnabas, but did you know that Barnabas isn't actually his name? His mother didn't call him Barnabas. His mother called him Joseph. Does anyone know what Barnabas means? Son of encouragement, that's right. Barnabas is his nickname. This Joseph was such a wonderful, encouraging guy to be around that the church in Jerusalem gives him the nickname Son of Encouragement. Uh, Luke says in verse 24, what does he say about him? He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's the only guy in Acts that's described as a good man. That's the sort of guy that Barnabas is. He's the guy that everyone loves to be around. He's, he's been well trained by the church in Jerusalem. They've pumped resources into him. He's a, the kind of guy that just genuinely loves people. He's delightful to be around. If he was Australian, you'd call him a top bloke. You don't want to lose a guy like that from your church, do you? But the church in Jerusalem is willing to send him since they know that these new believers in Antioch will need to be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. And so they send the guy who is the best at encouraging. It's costly for the church in Jerusalem to send him. But the church policy is to send their best because their heart is for the growth of the church all over the world, not just within the four walls of the Jerusalem church. Are we a church like that? People come and go from our church all the time. They they move as work and family situations change. But are we a church that deliberately sends people, our best people, so that they can be a blessing to the kingdom of God somewhere else? Do we send our best to overseas mission or to uh, rural churches that don't have a pastor? It's easy to make excuses about the cost of that. It's costly to send our best people. What will happen to us if our best trained people go somewhere else? How do we cope if we send the guys who are the most encouraging people Well, what's the answer to that? The answer to that is to go back to the previous point in in my sermon, teach the word. Teaching the word trains more best people. And then we can send them as well. Train and then send and then train and then send. That's how God grows his church. That's how God grows his kingdom, through gospel generosity in giving away our best. Friends, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? The shelves at Kurong are kind of stacked with churches of, uh, with books about church planting, all sorts of strategies that are adopted from you know the latest research and uh, and business, the business world. You know, empower lay leaders, incarnational ministry, foster community involvement, uh, buy a smoke machine and pay the best musicians. All of those sorts of things. God's way is really simple, isn't it? 
But God's way is the way that he has been growing churches all over the world for 2,000 years. All sorts of demographics, all sorts of cultures, different people, in cities and towns all over the world for 2,000 years. He does it through ordinary Christians who speak the word and live lives of gospel generosity. Friends, it's a thrilling and a wonderful work to be involved in, isn't it? It's an unstoppable work because it's God's work. It's a life-changing work. And it's a work that's going to last forever. Friends, why don't you pray with me and thank God that he uses ordinary people like us in such a wonderful work. Our Heavenly Father, uh, you determined uh, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus would go out from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and we thank you that it really has done that. Uh, For us, who are about as far as... uh, Uh, far away from Jerusalem as you can get. It has uh, happened through these events that we have looked at this morning. Uh, Thank you that you have kept growing your church. And Father, we pray that you would use us in the way that you have used millions of believers before us. Help us as ordinary Christians to speak your words. Help us to cling to you with purpose of heart. And help us to overflow in gospel-hearted generosity. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.